You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, help us now to have faith in your mysteries, especially the gospel of the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen. We're entering, we've been preaching on 1 Corinthians for a few weeks, and we're entering chapter 4, which means that we're actually, this week and for a couple weeks, wrapping up the first sort of section of 1 Corinthians of this letter. And chapters 1 through 4 addressed a specific problem in the church, and uh, divisions, the, the problem was divisions related to church ministries, specifically ministers. Uh, and so chapters 1 through 4 address these divisions in the church, and, and therefore, um, because there's this problem, Paul's trying to give a proper perspective on the way that we ought to view uh, ministers of the church and church ministries. Uh, and we're not done, as I said, with chapter 4 today. We're just starting it. So the section is still a little bit lo- longer, but there's a turning point between 3 and 4, which is why I'm highlighting that. And as we get beyond chapter 4, we'll be moving into Paul addressing other specific concerns, and that'll be in in about three, four weeks maybe. And just by the way, it's a bit PG-13, so just uh, keep that in mind uh, in a few weeks, especially when we hit chapter 5. Pray for me, because I have to preach on that. Um, But anyway, so that's that's coming up ahead. But here we are in chapter 4. And the major theme Paul has hit on um, when addressing these concerns about church divisions over ministers is that the things that seem wise in this world are not always wise after all. And the things of God that seem foolish are where actually true wisdom and strength are to be found. That's the sort of paradox, the theme that's overlaid Uh, with Paul's addressing these divisions in the church. Um, And namely, that wisdom is to be found in the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ, which looks like a stumbling block or foolishness to all the world. Um, So uh, here we are uh, moving into chapter 4, but I feel like I need to rewind a few verses. We did look at chapter 3, but we've pole vaulted over the end of chapter 3. So if you happen to have a Bible, or if you want to look at it in your pews, you can find 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. I just want to look at verses 18 through 23. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I'll read it. But he's, what he's doing here in this last paragraph of chapter 3 feels like a recap, uh, sort of conclusion of those first three chapters, where he's recapping most of what he's said so far, the main gist He says there, starting at verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. 
Well, here's a, just a couple of points to draw out of that. And by the way, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas are, are hitting on the different ministers that are identified with the divisions in the church. But here are a couple of points to sort of draw out of what I've just read here to you at the end of chapter 3. First of all, he speaks of deception. He speaks of deception. Um, that there are things that this world uh, not only promotes as wise, or as we might say in our day, that these things are just obvious, they're, of course, wise because it should be obvious to everyone that it's true. He speaks of uh, not only uh, these things that the world promotes as wise, but they are uh, misleading and futile. That is to say, they're a waste of time. If they're futile, they're a waste of time. You're wasting your time, Paul says, and don't waste your time on these thoughts. And certainly don't boast in these things. Rather, as he said at the end of chapter 1, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so that's the sort of uh, recap paragraph there at the end of chapter 3 in that first section here. And so this thought leads into chapter 4. And we've read today just a very short section, verses 1 through 5, where he explains that this is how one should regard Paul, Apollos, and Cephas are all ministers, are all Christians for that matter, that all uh, followers of Jesus Christ are also ministers of the gospel, that if you're a, a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you too are a minister of the gospel. And so this is how we ought to view all Christians, basically, as he says here at the beginning of chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Well, so what's he saying here? That all uh, genuine followers of Jesus are servants, he says. Uh, That is, they're stewards of the mysteries of God. And those mysteries include, among them, the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. And also, this language about servants and stewards If I could read it to you in the Greek, you would see that basically what he's trying to get across is that we are like the working class. We are like the blue collar when it comes to the work that we're doing uh, for the mysteries of God. That uh, we're doing the sort of menial work, as it were. We're not to be esteemed. We're to be faithful in our work, to do our duty uh, for the sake of, 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 of... of, um, of guarding the mysteries of God and sharing the gospel. And so uh, that's the type of uh, language that he's uh, using here, and it's, uh, it's important for the message. It doesn't really come across in the translation. But the, the, a steward is a, is a sort of caretaker of a property. Um, well, what does is, what is a steward or a caretaker of a large property or estate do? Well, he faithfully serves his master the one who owns the property and doesn't pay any mind to what anybody else thinks of the work that he's doing. He's concerned about what his master wants him to do. Just think of, if you've watched it, Downton Abbey, okay? If you haven't seen Downton Abbey, at least hopefully you know what I'm talking about. It's a large English estate in the early 20th century. There's a family who are wealthy and a very large uh, set of employees who are servants. And there's, a, there's another show that's called Upstairs, Downstairs, because that's a lot like Downton Abbey, because that's the way the division worked, right? The servants worked downstairs at the ground, the, the bottom, the basement level, right, where the kitchen is, 
and all the activity of the house, the, the sort of real activity of the family happens upstairs. Uh, well, the chief s- steward and servant uh, in Downton Abbey is who? Is Mr. Carson. He's the, the, the butler of this household. And his master is Mr. Crawley and the Crawley family. And it is to him alone, to Mr. Crawley, that Mr. Carson, the butler, must please at the end of the day. Um, and he'll be pulled in too many uh, directions if he's concerned about what other people think, if he's concerned about what his fellow downstairs employees think about the way that he's carrying out his task or what the world thinks for, for that matter. He must solely be concerned about what Mr. Crawley needs and how to best serve this estate, to, to steward it, to take care of the resources. And so it is with the servants of God. So it is with the servants of God. Remember, that's just another way of saying Christians, uh, not just the uh, pastors, that they're stewards of his mysteries. And all of that is a lead-up to the main thing that I want to say to you today, all of that sort of drum roll to what I really want to get across today, the main thing that Paul has for us today, which is about judgment or uh, judging or judgmentalism. I remember once I, 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 for my um, bachelor party, we went camping with my friends, and another friend was talking to me about this, and I could see the look on his face that he was judging me, that we didn't do something else. And I said, don't judge. You know, that's what I wanted to do for my bachelor party. Maybe you had other ideas, right? Um, that's what he's, he's talking about here is, is judgment, judgmentalism uh, in our passage. So Paul goes on to say, starting at the third verse, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. It's possible, uh, as we've explained before, that some people were judging Paul um, because he was not as eloquent as Apollos, which was a, a value of the Corinthian culture. Or perhaps, on the other hand, with Cephas or Peter, Paul didn't embody his Jewish uh, cultural Uh, culture as much as someone like Peter did. So maybe he's being judged uh, for uh, those reasons in other camps. To this, Paul says, I could care less. He's not saying, I I don't care about you people. He's writing this this letter to them, but he, he says to those thoughts, I personally could care less because my only concern is for the way that God himself perceives me and not anyone else. And he's especially talking about the last day when all that is true and hidden will, uh, for better or for worse, uh, become disclosed so that uh, it will be seen for what, it, for what it is. And any measurements that people use uh, to judge others are foolish uh, in the grand scheme of things compared to the, to the way that God will uh, judge Uh, And it's uh, sad that in this situation, we're talking about Christians, uh, fellow followers of Jesus Christ, judging other Christians. We're not talking about people outside of the church 
judging those in the church. We're talking about people inside of the church judging each other. Well, personally, I've had plenty of similar situations to what Paul's talking about here, just talking about within the church. And I'm sad to say that more often than not, uh, the, the people who, who are judging me for certain things where I've felt, this is just a personal example, maybe you've had an experience like this too, um, that sometimes the people who are, are judging me are, uh, purport to be fellow followers of Jesus Christ. Well, recently someone accused me of having a, a quote-unquote literal way of, of reading Scripture, which is always, almost always, unless you're in certain circles, is almost always meant to be a, an insult, you know, a critique and not a compliment. To say, you know, with the sort of, um, with the daggers, you know, you have a, a literal way of viewing uh, scripture is not meant to be a compliment, but a critique. It's, it's like saying, you must not be very bright because you can't read between the lines. Haven't you read the scholarship, Matt? You know, that's usually what someone's saying if they throw that kind of accusation at you. And I replied to this accusation with a rhetorical question. I said, do you know who else had a literal way of reading the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament? The answer is Jesus Christ. That Jesus also had a very literal way of reading the Old Testament. Of course, the person I was talking to laughed at me, (laughs) laughed in my face when I said this. Uh, To which I responded that Jesus spoke of Jonah, for example, and his time in the belly of the fish as if it happened. That Jesus in the Gospels speaks of, you remember the story of Jonah and the fish? He survived in the belly of the fish and was vomited out by this large fish. That he he equated uh, this story to his own death in reference to his own death that would happen as if the story of Jonah actually happened. He said in Matthew 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'm sorry, my my voice is bothering me. Uh, And Jesus also spoke of Noah as if he were an actual person, and the flood as if it were an actual historical event. (coughs) In Matthew 24 and Luke 17, he says this, just as it was in the days of Noah, So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And the person that I was speaking to who calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ again laughed at at my face when I said this, uh, mocking me for what I was saying, saying that Jesus was not referencing these things as history, but as allegory and metaphor, that I should, I should know better, you know, to, to, to read it that way. But this is, friends, just one example uh, where I have to disagree, that Jesus references some of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament as if they actually happened. And in, his, in other places, he, he refers to it as if he actually wrote it. He even says, it is written and in a way that like we should take this as true just consider when he's uh, being tempted by satan and uh, he refers to several things in the scriptures and says it is written now satan of all people was there i mean we have he's from the beginning of the bible in genesis chapter 3 of all people jesus could have said well come now satan we all know that that was an allegory Um, but that's not the way he talks he uh, refers to scripture 
it is written. And I'm completely aware that when I say these things, contemporary society uh, laughs at me. Worse yet, uh, it's, it's not enough to, to disagree anymore. Now people who disagree want to see you destroyed uh, when you have a point of view that they themselves cannot understand. And it's especially sad to me that more and more Christians speak this way about fellow Christians. And as I said, this is uh, just one example. I can give you countless more. Uh, there, there are more ways that uh, Christians who would try to remain faithful stewards uh, are, are growing increasingly odd to our world. Perhaps the chief stumbling block and foolishness is the same as it ever was, the message of the cross of Christ. This is the central message that Paul has for us in 1 Corinthians. And often uh, people judging us are those, unfortunately, who are closest to us, maybe family, maybe friends, maybe people in the church. <coughs> Excuse me. And because of this, this can cause us to second-guess ourselves. But I have to say that in these cases, sometimes people are being deceived, as Paul says, even the people that we love. And so here's my guidance for you. As a pastor of this church, and for this congregation. Here's my guidance for you. Please stop worrying about what others think about you, particularly when it comes to the content of Christian belief. Instead, concern yourself only with God's judgment, or, or better yet, his acquittal. And for this reason, you must also stop judging others on the world's terms. It cuts both ways. The truth will be disclosed, the things that are in darkness will be called out into light. So don't you bother yourself about making the judgments, because your judgments might be mistaken too. Well, taking such actions might make your life more difficult as it did for Paul, but the, the biggest alleviation for our concerns in this regard are right there in verses 4 and 5. He says, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring it to light. The things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God, from God himself. All that therefore is required of you is that you be found faithful in Jesus Christ, who was himself judged, laughed at, and mocked to an even greater extent than anything you will ever experience on your behalf, for you. So I appeal to you, therefore, in all the decisions of this life, and all the decisions, the, the options that you have to make in this life, when weighing the options, when, when confronted with a difficult decision, to consider what God wants for you. Consider what God wants for you. Will the decision that you make violate your conscience? In other words, will it be brought to light one day as the wrong way of going about things? Then don't do it. What will give you a good conscience according to Christ's teachings? Do that instead, even if it means following teachings that sound ridiculous to some of your best friends and family. Let me ask you a question. What is more difficult for God to do to cause a man to survive several days inside of a fish 
or to raise a man from dead after two nights in the grave? Or is it more difficult for God uh, to create the universe or to cause a flood to cover an entire planet and to save one family? And these are just examples. There are many more. Some are even more controversial for our day. And if you keep second-guessing the teachings of Christ, especially the redemption of humanity on the cross, then you'll be knocked about by every philosophical fad that comes. Because the ones that are popular today are going to go away in 25 years, and there'll be something new coming around. And worst of all, you might find yourself in rebellion against God. Instead, be fellow stewards of the mysteries of God together with Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. And the most important mystery being what Paul emphasized, or has emphasized for us for three chapters. And I leave you with that message. To be a steward of this message, that God rescued you from your rebellion by sending his son to redeem you by his cross. And your whole life is now to be lived in response to the knowledge of this good news, of this gospel message. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.